0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 90, Sunni vs. Shiite, Protestant vs. Catholic. No new patrons in the past two days since I recorded episode 89, but as always, consider supporting. Even a dollar per episode gets you some cool benefits, so check out the Patreon page, or just like us on Facebook and give us a shout out if you can. Getting into it. Last time we saw the Ottoman Navy get trounced, not once, but twice by the Spanish, signaling that they could be challenged, even in the friendly waters of the Eastern Mediterranean. The Ottomans also faced the wrath of the Safavids, losing all the territories they had gained in 1590 in a war against them. Over in Transylvania, Gabriel Bathory managed to rise and dominate Wallachia and Moldavia before, angry at their failure to adequately support him against the Habsburgs, he turned into a mad king who ultimately got himself murdered. A brief war with Poland brought Moldavia back into its kind of in-between status between Poland and the Ottomans, with loyalty pledged to both states. Poland and the Ottomans came to the brink of war again, but it was averted and the Ottomans were allowed to more thoroughly dominate Moldavia. However, soon the Thirty Years' War began between Catholics and Protestants of Europe, the new prince of Transylvania, Gabriel Bethlen, sided with the Ottomans and invaded the Habsburgs, but was pushed back. Meanwhile, the new Ottoman approved a voivoda of Moldavia who turned on them and sided with Poland, sparking another war there. And during all of this, the death of a 27 year old Sultan Ahmed I brought about the rule of his mad brother Mustafa, before he was ultimately replaced by Ahmed's son Osman. Still, Osman is a teenager, and it remains to be seen what he'll do as ruler. So, we're now to the beginning of this episode. There was a lot to recap there. So the Polish-Ottoman war begins in 1620, but the Ottomans and their Tatar allies aren't really ready yet. This was fortunate for Poland because their nobles didn't take the conflict too seriously. So the Ottomans planned a small invasion in the spring of 1621. 1621. But in the meantime, the Ottomans were able to push the Voivoda of Moldavia, who had allied himself against them with the Poles, out of the country and installed a new candidate in late 1620. This new Voivoda of Moldavia was an Italian man who had betrayed them and was soon murdered by two boyars who were worried what the Ottomans would do in aiding them in the betrayal. So he didn't last very long. But the war did still begin, in 1620, as a Polish army moved down into Moldavia to engage with a Tatar force. The Polish Commonwealth forces had hoped the Moldavians would rally to their side, but the Moldavians mostly stuck with the Ottomans. In September, their army encountered a joint Ottoman, Tatar, Transylvanian, and Wallachian force, which outnumbered them three to one. On the first day of battle, the Tatars surprised their foes and took many prisoners, leading the remaining Moldavians, such as they were, to defect over to the Ottomans. Over the next several days, attack after attack broke the Polish forces, killing the vast majority of them. The campaign then slowly died down for the winter, but the Ottomans now had greater ambitions to conquer Ukraine and perhaps even reach the Baltic Sea. The next year, Osman showed that, well, he was serious, despite his age. He led, in person, an Ottoman army in excess of a 100,000 strong. The boy was just 16 years old. The Poles, understandably, now took this war far more seriously and tried their best to muster more troops, but they could still only raise about half that number. The armies were in place by late summer, with the Polish-Lithuanian force entrenching itself around that ever-vital fortress of Hotin. And seriously, if I'd only known what an interesting place Hotin was when I visited in 2014, I had never heard of it. I didn't take it that seriously. Now I want to go back. Side note, though. So the Polish-Lithuanian strategy here was to counter the Ottomans' numerical advantage with deep defenses, which used the fortress and the river to their advantage. Scattered attacks by Cossack cavalry started the battle but it was only on September 2nd that the main Ottoman force arrived and began a proper siege. The first few days saw savage Ottoman attacks that were successfully repulsed. The Poles also made some effective attacks on the Ottoman camp. After the first week of this, the Ottomans were frustrated with their lack of progress and decided to attempt to completely cut off the Polish forces and starve them out. They did this successfully but more Cossack attacks raised Commonwealth morale. By September 25th, both armies were exhausted and low on supplies, and the Poles retreated to a more easily defended position. The Ottomans kept attacking with their final assault coming on September 28th. But at this point, neither side could really pull a substantial victory out of the situation, and the campaign season was late, and so they met to negotiate. The resulting treaty saw no change to the border, but once again the Poles were forbidden from interfering in Moldavia. Really, when they went home, both sides declared victory. The Poles had stopped the Ottoman army in its tracks. The Ottomans had reaffirmed their dominance in Moldavia. Still, the young Osman was quite unsatisfied with the way his soldiers, particularly the Janissaries, had performed. To respond to this, He closed their coffee shops to prevent them from gathering there. This is generally where the Janissaries hung out and discussed politics and whatever they discussed at the time. And, well, in kind of realizing what was happening to the Janissaries, that they were becoming less effective, Osman began to construct a new military force based around a corps of Anatolian soldiers. But the Janissaries were having none of it. They saw the writing on the wall, they did not want to be replaced, and so, unfortunately for the young Osman, the Janissaries decided to overthrow him and had him killed in 1622. It was just the latest example of how the Janissary Corps had changed. Once the most feared and quite possibly the most effective fighting force in Europe, it was now less and less effective. Its power, on the other hand, had grown, politically that is, The force was now greedy and undisciplined, even though the Devshirme was still being collected. We've talked about it before, but young children throughout the Balkans were still being taken and converted to Islam, made technically slaves of the sultan, though, again, this shows that the idea of them being slaves is not quite what would match what our common understanding of slaves, and that they just killed the sultan who was going to replace them. And, well... That just gives you an idea of what's happening with the Janissaries. I mean, they're still an effective fighting force, but they're beginning to be a problem. And Osman was really the first sultan to try to do something about it, and he paid for it with his life. Now, remember, Mustafa, who had been deposed to allow Osman to come to power, well, he was still alive. And so the Janissaries just put him back on the throne and had everyone involved in his he had ever involved in his nephew's murder executed. So even though the Janissaries had put him on the throne, he had to make a show of justice for his nephew's murderers. But ultimately, he was just as mad as ever and continued to be controlled by court factions. And Osman, well, despite his young age, he had left a legacy. A governor in Anatolia who had consulted him on the move against the Janissaries was now taking matters into his own hand killing and exiling Janissaries in his province. even being He was actually even dismissed by the new regime of Mustafa, but it wasn't enough to stop his actions. He sort of went rogue. In response, Turkmen in the area rallied to his side and began to take control over a larger region. But for now, the port, which you'll hear me use more and more, has become a common term to refer to the Ottoman government, referring to the port, the French word for a door, the entryway to the Topkapi Palace, the place where the Sultan is living. And so it's kind of like referring to, you know, the capital city to refer to a place like, oh, Washington did X. So the port. So the port, the Ottoman government, was really too preoccupied elsewhere to worry about this quasi-rebellion going on against the Janissaries in Anatolia. Because While the Polish-Ottoman War and the Abaza Rebellion had been going on, while all these things had been happening in the previous few years, that 30 years' war I'd mentioned had been raging as well. Emperor Ferdinand was victorious in the early years, the Catholic side that is, successfully retaking all that Hungarian territory that Gabriel Bethlen, Prince of Transylvania, had recently conquered. His own diminished support and lack of any strong backing from the Ottomans forced Gabriel to sue for peace in 1621. Bethlen was thereby forced to give up the Hungarian crown, and the situation more or less returned to the status quo antebellum. Still, just two years later, Bethlen was yet again fighting with Protestant forces against the Catholic Habsburgs. He eventually offered to ally with the Habsburgs against the Ottomans, switching sides there, by marrying an Austrian archduchess. But the Emperor Ferdinand wasn't interested. I imagine both he and the Ottomans were quite fed up with princes of Transylvania at this point. But Bethlen wasn't the only one trying to find trying and sort of failing to find a balance between the Ottomans and European powers. In Moldavia, Stefan IX Tomsha was deposed by the Ottomans after failing to find a balance within Moldavia between pro-Polish Commonwealth nobles and Ottoman interests. So we're really seeing a pattern here, right? Less so in Wallachia. Wallachia is more closely under the control of the Ottomans. It's closer to their core territories, just across the river. But for Moldavia and Transylvania we're still seeing this everlasting ever struggle play out, of trying to find, okay, how do we balance between the, the internal and external forces that want us to side with one or another? Somehow, in Moldavia and Transylvania, despite the wars and the treaties, their leaders were still locked in this perpetual battle for balance. And undoubtedly, it was a battle where the average people lost. But the Ottomans themselves were also desperately searching for balance and stability of their own. The chaos following the murder of Osman II, the beginning of the Abaza rebellion in Anatolia, and the poor state of Mustafa, who is said to have been wandering the halls of the palace, calling out for his murdered brother Osman, not believing the boy was truly dead. Well, is it any wonder that the leaders of the Abaza rebellion, that sort of Anatolian anti Janissary rebellion, finally decided to march on the capital, and poor Mustafa himself was deposed. Though, lucky for him, through negotiations with his mother, the boy's life was again spared. Which, you know, lucky Mustafa. Uh, Twice now he's been overthrown as sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and both times he was allowed to stay alive. No doubt because of his mental state, no one saw him as that much of a threat. But still, we had yet another change in leadership in the Ottoman Empire. And, well, with all this happening, is it any wonder that the Safavids were ready to take advantage? But Mustafa's half-brother Murad became Sultan Murad IV, and the Safavids invaded, just like that, beginning yet another war in the east that the empire was ill-prepared for. The Ottomans still controlled Baghdad and Iraq, and the Safavids were resolved to take it. Within months, they had stormed across the border, taken Baghdad, and massacred its Sunni Arab population, intending to turn the city, they, not just sort of a military into like a military place, but a, a cultural bastion. Right? If they could replace the population with a uh, Sunni, or sorry, a Shia, a kind of pro-Safavid population, it would be far harder for the Ottomans to control in the future. They were thinking long term. Throughout 1624 and 1625, the Safavids swept through Iraq, further taking Kirkuk and Mosul, as the Ottoman allies abandoned them in light of the empire's evident weakness. At least they did succeed in finally putting down the Abaza Rebellion during this time, though I haven't read anything about it, but it's quite possible that the change in leadership helped uh, the rebellion be put down. An Ottoman relief force did finally managed to get out to the east and lay siege to Baghdad, but a Safavid relief force chased them away before they could retake the city. By 1626, the Ottomans had been effectively chased out of the region, and the situation was looking grim for them. In 1627, a Safavid army was in Georgia, and the Ottomans requested that the leader of the Abaza rebellion assist them shouldn't be such a big surprise, his forces turned on the Ottomans, raided their camp, and killed many of their leaders, their pashas. The Ottomans now turned on him and laid siege to his fortress in Erzurum in central Anatolia. By 1628, Abaza accepted a peace deal in which he was allowed to go and rule an Ottoman province far from his base of support. Again, lucky guy. I mean, frankly, it's astonishing he was left alive and it showed the weakness of the Ottomans at this moment that they were willing to let a man who had led two uprisings against them and killed many to continue not just to live, but to govern a province. Still, while the Thirty Years' War was raging in Europe, meaning the Ottomans didn't have to worry really about being attacked on that front, Europe was too busy with its own things, the Safavids making gains in the east, well, they couldn't afford to take their time and deal with baza the way they would have liked, so likely this... All this chaos, all this war meant they had to take a route out of that rebellion that they maybe didn't prefer. And here I want to mention something that I've alluded to a few times, but I want to talk about it in a little bit more detail. Because in this period, and really for more than a century before, when we talk about the port, when we talk about the governance of the Ottoman Empire, you can't leave out the so-called Sultanate of Women. Now, this has been going on, as I said, for over a century with a rise of female power, generally the mothers and wives of the sultans, beginning in the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. But while during that era these women had been powers in court, the reigns of Ahmed, Mustafa, and Osman saw women basically running the show on behalf of their teenage or mentally unstable children this was possible because while the empire had been previously run from wherever the sultan was, i.e. often on campaign, so if the sultan was far off on a frontier, that's where the government was, that's where the decisions were being made. But the and during the system, the young heirs and their mothers, again, they weren't kept in Constantinople in the Topkapa Palace, they were sent off to govern provinces. Remember that system where whoever was closest to the capital was the heir apparent. This made it impossible for these women to amass power in the same way. But now that the empire was run solely from the palace in Constantinople, and the young princes remained there throughout their lives and their whole childhoods, there were ample opportunities for these women to build bases of political power. Now, of course, the viziers, you know, the the sort of cabinet members and prime ministers, if you will, they wielded power within this environment to varying extents. But they could be dismissed or even executed far more easily than a sultan's mother or wife could. And this is in part what made these women so powerful. Their their status was more long-lasting, more resilient. The public and the viziers may have opposed the de facto rule from time to time, but in practice there wasn't that much they could do to limit the power of these women. They generally built their own reputations through charity and public works to try to win over some public favor, but, as is clear, that didn't always work. Frankly, if you look back into ancient history, we see this most of the time. When a woman rules, often it's harder for her, right? The population is less willing to accept her legitimacy, and she has to really put in extra effort. But they can be tremendously successful, as we know. It's also another reminder something I alluded to a little bit before in this episode, that the institution of slavery in the Ottoman Empire was just so different than how someone who is raised learning about slavery in, say, a Western Hemisphere, North or South American sense, would think about it. Technically, because I want to mention this, that these women, the Sultanate of Women, they were slaves of the Sultan, just as the Janissaries were. But it should be clear that their position bore no resemblance to the position of chattel slaves in the Americas. In practice, slave meant more subject, as in a subject uh, person within an empire or a state, more than literal property who was bought and sold. This applies to the term used by Bulgarians under Ottoman rule as well, something, again, we've discussed in the past and we'll talk about a lot more when we reach the 19th century. And speaking of female power, in 1639, Gabriel Bethlen died and was succeeded by his wife, as it seemed he had no children, but remember Transylvania was not a traditional monarchy, and so his wife wasn't you know didn't become ruler just by being his wife. she was actually elected by the diet to be Princess of Transylvania. Interestingly, she was from Brandenburg, you know, near modern Berlin, and had spent much of her life in Sweden. One only wonders what she made of Transylvania at this time, though despite her foreignness. She was elected, and the Ottomans approved of her position. And despite this, she actually did try to push the the Transylvania towards the Habsburgs, which is a bit unsurprising. I mean, the Habsburgs were a lot closer to what she was familiar with, despite the fact that, spending all that time in Brandenburg and Sweden, she was a Protestant. But, you know, she could only get away with that for so long, and less than a year after she became the ruler, the Ottomans pushed her out. They wanted her brother-in-law on the throne instead, but within two weeks, the son of the former Prince of Transylvania, Sigismund Rakotsi, and the boy's name was George Rakotsi, was elected instead. Now that same year, the Ottomans embarked on yet another offensive against the Safavids. Flooding in Iraq meant that the army couldn't really effectively operate there, and so they instead invaded Persia proper. For once, the Ottomans defeated a Safavid army and sacked one of their cities before managing to get into Iraq and laying siege to Baghdad once again. But another bad winter was coming, and the weather threatened Ottoman communication and supplies, and so the army had to withdraw and allow the Safavids to re-establish control there. Or rather, I could say re-re-establish. Suddenly, though, the Ottomans were back in the game despite those late setbacks, Or, really, that's what you'd think, because the next few years didn't see any substantial gains by either side. But, you know who was making gains? The Janissaries. Not on the battlefield, but in the palace. In 1631, they stormed the palace and killed the Grand Vizier. The now 19-year-old Sultan Murad, understandably fearing having the same fate of his younger half-brother Osman, decided that it was time to really assert his authority for the first time. He resolved to end the corruption that had been growing as a result of inflation, tax farming, and the sultanate of women. Not to say that the women were sort of inherently corrupt, but they were unable or unwilling to take a strong stand against corruption based on their position, and so their power helped corruption flourish. One of the first steps was to ban the coffee houses. I actually posted on the Facebook page recently about the role of coffee houses, so like the Facebook page and check that out. It's a really interesting article, but In short, they were places where people like Janissaries could meet and talk and scheme a little bit, and previously there was no good place for this to happen naturally, and so there wasn't as much of it. Now, Murad also banned alcohol and tobacco, instituting the death penalty for anyone breaking these bans. In other words, his Way of tackling corruption was attacking the places where corruption happened, as well as attacking what he saw as vices, you know, the things that he saw as leading to moral degeneration. But his practices were even more brutal than that, because he would disguise himself in civilian clothes to patrol the streets and taverns, looking for people who were flouting his bands. When he found them, he would identify himself and execute the person on the spot. He would also sit near the waters around his palace and kill boatmen with a bow and arrow when they rowed too close to the palace walls. What I'm trying to say is he liked killing people. For the rest of the 1630s, he went about implementing this whole new set of strict policies, but time would only tell whether they would have their intended effect. Now, over on the high seas, the Ottomans were actually reaching farther than ever, despite their recent losses in the eastern Mediterranean. Armed with that better boat technology given to them by the Dutch during their previous revolt against the Spanish Habsburgs, if you'll recall, these years saw Ottoman barbary corsairs raiding places like Iceland and Ireland, where, for example, villagers in County Cork were taken away as slaves to North Africa. One can only imagine the torture they endured, those poor Irish people in North Africa with no sunscreen. The horror. Anyways, little joke for people like me who uh, need a lot of sunscreen. But besides that, I mean, just imagine—you know—Ottoman-led Barbary pirates going to Iceland. It's 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 really wild, and well, showed the the expanding reach of the Ottomans, and particularly though the Barbary pirates. However, they were still being challenged. European states would occasionally sign peace treaties with them, but they were never very well enforced. Gradually, however. This is the time when England was transforming into a global naval power, a transformation which allowed it to increasingly challenge and defeat these corsairs. But that's a very gradual process, and so we'll check up on that over time. Now, on the subject of tackling corruption, the Moldavian throne was getting traded between several men who bribed their way into the position, as the Ottomans hoped one of them might be able to hold back the pro-Polish Commonwealth boyars, as Alexandru Coconu, I think that's the right pronunciation, the last Romanian descendant of Vlad the Impaler, and one-time voivoda of both Wallachia and Moldavia died. So, the Ottomans are facing that classic challenge. How do they find just the right ruler of Moldavia, while also making sure that ruler can bribe whoever needs to be bribed? And, well, in that situation, in both Wallachia and Moldavia, there's a new trend emerging about who is taking the reins. Because in 1629, a man named Leon Tomsha became Prince of Wallachia. Now, while he claimed to be the son of Stefan IX Tomsha, he was actually a Greek oystermonger. Not the first time we've seen some random charlatan lying about his identity ruling Wallachia or Moldavia, but it's the first Greek one that I'm aware of. Now, during this era, people like him, Phanariots, a.k.a. Greeks from the Phanar district, of Constantinople, a Greek dominated district, became nobles or even rulers of Wallachia and Moldavia. And with well, we're kind of in the very, very early stages. Over time, the Phanariots, these Greek nobles, are eventually going to kind of dominate these two states. And so this is going to be a very important phenomenon that we're going to follow for centuries. But at the same time, both the states are experiencing worsening economic conditions. Now, On the positive side, the Ottomans were taking fewer taxes, but this did not change the fact that following the unification attempts by men like Michael the Brave, their military and diplomatic power was spent. The states were simply exhausted, much in the same way we saw Bulgarian states exhausted after fighting really intensive periods of conflict. True, Moldavia was still being fought over by Poland-Lithuania, But the Ottomans were exerting increasing control now, and so they didn't have a lot of flexibility or wiggle room to really try to improve their situation. And at least for now, because as 1633 dawns, the Safavid War is heating up again, and a rogue governor is about to go to war with Poland on behalf of the Ottomans, whether they like it or not. Next time, the Ottomans are going to find themselves and yet more wars, as the final years of that 30 years war reshaped the European idea of what a state even is, kicking off yet more changes which will leave the Ottomans behind and reshape the continent. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, and maps and images and timelines and important characters of every single episode at BG History Podcast.